You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 112. Today, we are going to hear all about what might have been the world's largest strike, with some 150 million people reported to stop work. Didn't hear about it? That's probably because it took place in India, and the U.S. media does not do a very good job covering such news. We will remedy that, but first, the other news. Last week, on September 9th, the anniversary of the Attica Prison Rebellion, incarcerated people around the country went on strike, refusing their barely compensated labor to the system that keeps them locked up, and to the private companies that buy its goods. The multi-state, multi-prison effort was months in the planning, and we spoke to Pastor Kenneth Glasgow, the outside spokesperson for the Free Alabama Movement, which called the strike. Tell me how many people went on strike yesterday and how many solidarity actions there were. From yeah. what I understand from uh, what's been reported from the Department of Corrections and all, you had about at least 75 to 100 prisoners that went on strike. North Carolina, I know South Carolina, Mississippi, Texas, Ohio, oh my God, I mean everywhere. <laughs> You know, we can't even start to tell you, right? Yeah. And they went on strike, and it was very, very successful. Yeah. But what turned out even more, I won't say more significant, but what turned out even as significant as them going on strike is all of the protests and people standing with them in solidarity. Yeah. Can you talk about the significance of prisoners going on strike and refusing to work while they're in prison? The significance of people going on strike and refusing to work while they're in prison is really, really high. Well, you got the government, the Department of Justice, that just declared that they are not going to have any more private prisons. Right. Right? I think that that's great. I think it's noble. It's a good step in the right direction. Right. But also what they need to look at is private companies and industry that use prison labor, free prison labor. Let me give you an example. In Alabama alone, uh, they have to make 20,000 license plates a day. That's their quarter. Right. In order to hit that quota of 100000 a week. Yeah. When they don't do that, it, it causes them a deficit or diminishes their money that they're making, which is $1.7 billion, not million, billion dollars a year. When you have people for less than a dollar, 15 cents, uh, some of them working for free, the people in prison do all the cooking. They do all the laundry. They do all the landscape. They do all the construction. Now, they may have a licensed electrician there, but all the laborers are are those that's in prison. They may have a licensed plumber, but all the laborers are those in prison. Right. So the significance of them stop working shuts down, shuts down a system that has been feeding and exploiting people ever since they created the 13th Amendment. Right, right. So the significance of it is order to stop the 13th Amendment, revise it, it, really we need to abolish it and eradicate it. Because as long as the 13th Amendment exists, we have slavery written in our Constitution. Yeah. You know, we shouldn't have any kind of clauses that you're free, except for if you got a felony conviction, then you could become an indentured servant or an enslaved person. Right. So the significance of this is to have our freedom. So what we are trying to do now is get people to a point where they understand that these private companies and that these private industries are not only making money off those that are in prison, but they're double taxing. Uh, Do you know what I mean? People are paying anywhere from $31,000 to $80,000 a year to have someone incarcerated. Right. 
Yeah. Taxpayers. Right. Taxpayers should be jumping up and down about people being exploited and used for free prison labor right. when taxpayers are the one that's praying for them to be incarcerated in the first place. Yeah. So when you have no rehabilitation, no education, you have no pre-release programs, and you're just working these people that's already being paid for, then where's all that money going? Yeah. Okay? Another thing we want to highlight is the fact that if you stop the free prison labor, then they have to produce more jobs. That means that the correctional officers have to do the work. They have to do the cooking. They have to do the construction. They have to do the laundry. And so you have correctional officers now that are looking at, we can't side with the inmates. But what we can say is we agree with what they are doing and why they are doing it. Mm -hmm. So that's what developed in the last few days. Yeah. To a point to where the inmates in the guards came together and said, wait a minute. The Department of Corrections, the state, has put all of us in a volatile environment. When you have seven guards running a prison that has 19 to 2,400 inmates, yeah. seven correctional officers, what are they going to do when they strike if they wasn't doing it peaceful? Yeah. But the inmates said, no, we were having peace for the free Alabama movement declared it peaceful, kept it peaceful, and it's still peaceful. What are what are the next steps after this? Do you know what else is being planned? Well, the next steps are they're going to look at it at different states in South Carolina. SJ have made some demands on South Carolina laws that they need changed. The Free Alabama Movement have made their demands on uh, the Habitual Offender Act, on the Life Without Parole, the Innocence Inquiry Commission. Mm-hmm. You know, and they're going to try to see these demands met. They want to see some results before they even let up the strike. Yeah, yeah. And that may not mean that they get the laws passed because we're not a session, but that may mean that the Department of Corrections at least listen to them and treat them as people Yeah, and, and, and human beings. That was Pastor Kenneth Glasgow, outside spokesperson for the Free Alabama Movement on the nationwide prison strike last week. We also have some words from Kinetic Justice, a Free Alabama Movement organizer in solitary confinement. Well, the best thing that people can do on the outside to help us on the inside is uh, to set up solidarity committees. And what I mean by set up solidarity committees, that is that we need people to be monitoring uh, certain prisons, certain states, and to be checking up on um, instances of retaliation or instances of abuse, or uh, those type things, so that we can have somebody on top of that. Um, because we're not we're not naive to think that um, our life is not on the line here, and that it's that serious. So we need all of the protection and defense we can uh, for these brothers who are, are stepping out and putting their life on the line uh, for this endeavor. So we need we need people, uh, you know, to get involved and you know organize themselves and you know commit themselves to stay in touch with people in this prison and watch this prison and keep up with what's going on here. Uh, that's one thing. Uh, and we we need a, uh, something like a switchboard. Um, we need somebody on the outside to be able to coordinate information coming from different states. Uh, about what's going on, um, because that's going to be one of the most important things, the communication infrastructure uh, throughout this. Um, a lot of us going to lose communication uh, because the repression going to come and you're going to be able to use the phone like you usually do. Uh, so it's going to be that you have to be preparation, you have to be um, clear cut that this was got to be done, A, B, C, and if C don't work, then you got to go D. Uh, so we have contingency plans about what to do in case we lose communication uh, with the outside. And that's going to happen a couple of times, or, and it may happen for a while. 
but we have enough information, enough education, information out there uh, with our outside constituents as well as uh, the organizations and so forth that I really believe that um, we can make a concerted effort on the inside and outside um, to do what needs to be done to get it done. But we've got to keep the communication. Communication is key. Um, I'm really, really impressed with a lot of the uh, initiatives that people around the country are doing uh, in support of solidarity or other strike uh, from New Jersey all the way to California. You know what I'm saying? I'm seeing uh, all kind of demonstrations on the highways, all kind of shutting the highways down. Uh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's way overdue. And specifically for the people on the inside to be able to, to see that or to hear that or to learn that, you know, that this is not just something that nobody's paying attention to that they're doing in prison, but this is something that's nationally recognized, that's nationally known, and that this right here is history in the making. And we're history makers. All of us right here, we're playing a part in history in the biggest change in this country in the last probably 50 years. Right here, we have the opportunity to change the dynamics and the structure of the United States criminal justice system, and which in turn will change a lot of other institutions in this country that need to be corrected. We will, of course, keep up with this story. Well, $15 can pay for about three Big Macs, and that's more than enough for one day's lunch for a family, right? Well, there's actually a better way to make those $15 last. For the people who worry where their next meal is coming from every day, they need to make at least $15 per hour to really put food on the table year-round. That's according to a new report from the Century Foundation showing that raising the national minimum wage to $15 an hour can lift a whopping $1.2 million food insecure families into food security. So that basically means that bringing the hourly base wage to $15 by 2023, which is something that a number of states and cities are already on their way towards, would help many, many households achieve a level of food security that would allow them to afford an adequate supply of food to meet their families' basic nutritional needs on a regular basis. About 44% of those families, or half a million, would be Black and Latino households. Nearly 350,000 would be single-parent households, who tend to suffer disproportionately from food insecurity, otherwise known as hunger. The analysis does not project the ripple effects of the higher minimum wage, but generally speaking, that will come in the form of a boost in wages higher up on the income ladder, nor does it show some of the knock-on effects of having food security in your household, namely better educational outcomes for kids, more productivity in the workforce, generally lower levels of stress, and a greater sense of financial security that will allow people to do things like plan ahead for college and do other things in life other than worry about where their next meal is coming from. So the report isn't rocket science, as the author William Rogers III told me, but it does show how a straightforward policy measure like raising the minimum wage can make a massive difference in the economic situation of over a million people. It also shows the reality of food insecurity, which has risen significantly since the 2007 economic crisis. Federal data shows us that the number of food insecure households nationwide rose to about one in seven households nationwide. So while the $15 minimum wage would only take a slice out of that, it would be a pretty significant number of people to lift out of hunger. 
More importantly, the uh, authors of the paper point out that this wage increase would help people who are on the upper end of the food insecurity spectrum. So these are people who tend to be working poor, but not so poor that they're you know, jobless and perhaps uh, relying on subsidies to get by. That means it would make work finally pay off for a lot of these people. Currently, many people are sort of stuck in this rut where if they get a job, they make just enough to scrape by and just enough to force them to reduce their benefits according to the federal eligibility criteria, and yet it's still not enough to make ends meet. So the $15 minimum wage won't help everyone, but it would help, say, working poor single mothers who are having to skip meals so that their children have enough to eat at night. And of course, that is the great irony of being one of the wealthiest countries in the world and still having a huge hunger problem. So the next time someone argues that the minimum wage hike would kill jobs, just remember that fear of, quote, killing jobs pales in comparison to the risk of starving people, which we're already doing. My new favorite labor slogan was born last week in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania at the Just Born, yes, that's really the name, plant where some well-known candies are made. No justice, no peeps. Yes, marshmallow peeps, that kind of creepy, marshmallowy, spongy, sugary Easter candy, uh, along with Mike and Ike's and hot tamales and other such things, were all made at this plant. The 400 workers at the plant, members of the Bakery, Confectionery, Tobacco, Workers, and Grain Millers Union Local Number 6, went on strike on September 7th, walking off the job in response to the company's plan to switch to a 401k from a pension plan for new hires and other disputes over health insurance, pay, you know, the usual, because all of these companies seem to operate off the same playbook. Weird how that happens. Anyway, the workers had been without a contract since June and uh, supported on the picket line by other workers from the area who brought them cake and bottled water. Seems like a good union to be in when you're making cake and candy. Um, (laughs) They had high spirits, at least, to begin with. I think people understand our position and why we're doing this, one worker told reporters, saying they got lots of car horn honks and support as people passed by. The company announced that it would be hiring replacement workers, or as they're known within the labor movement, scabs, but also reiterated in one of the union strongholds of the country, Pennsylvania, that it was committed to negotiating with the workers. This is the first strike in the company's 93-year history, so I guess we will see how much they mean that. And in the meantime, no justice, no peeps! While many people dread going back to school at the end of the summer, This week, the Long Island University faculty is unbelievably happy to be able to return to their classrooms. That's because for days, the administration actually blocked them from going to work. It was an unprecedented lockout in higher education. The shock move by the university higher-ups came after a long gridlock over contract negotiations. But remember, this is the administration's response to the impasse, to force them to stop work. It was not a strike, and it took the students and faculty completely by surprise. The campus was reeling, there was chaos everywhere, they struggled to recruit emergency replacement teachers, and the results were pretty disastrous for those first couple of days. But on the evening of September the 14th, the union, the Long Island University Faculty Federation, one of the only faculty unions in private higher education, announced that the lockout had come to an end and that they were going back to the bargaining table under the authority of a mediator. Um, Hopefully that will smooth things over, at least for the 
duration of the year that they have managed to extend their contract by. It's unclear what the outcomes will be, but the labor disputes that led up to this clash um, are ongoing and uh, the Long Island University faculty held their ground. Um, They were firm on their demands that there be no rollbacks on the wages or working conditions or the cuts in benefits that the university was proposing. Um, They raised a number of key points. For instance, they resisted the administration's attempt to make some moves that would remove the educator's authority over class size and how they ran their classes um, and to roll back some of the key tenure protections. Um, A lot of these issues are issues that are roiling throughout the higher education community. And so the fact that the Long Island University faculty refused to back down just underscores the importance of academic labor and academic labor movements. And I talked to Emily Drabinsky. She is a librarian at Long Island University and the secretary of the union. Here she is talking about the implications of the lockout and what the next steps might be. The end of the lockout comes with an agreement to extend the contract to May 2017. So we'll be working under the current contract for another year. All out-of-pocket health expenses will be paid. We will continue to pursue our unfair labor practice charges with the NLRB, and uh, we will bring in a mediator to assist in the, in the negotiation of a fair contract. So that gives us a year to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and has this happened before, um, this kind of uh, mediation? Not as far as I know, mm-hmm. no. Is this the first lockout uh, that you've ever encountered on campus? Well, it's 100% the first lockout. There's never been another lockout in higher education in the United States. So um, it's the first lockout. I was uh, part of the strike in the contract year 2008. Mm-hmm. So No, 2011, I'm sorry. So it was a 2011 strike. So this is my second time being out on the sidewalk, Yeah. As they say. Given your past experience, how much faith do you have in the process going forward in terms of the ability of this mediator to smooth over some of the conflicts? You know, I have no idea, right? I don't know who the mediator is. I don't have a whole lot of faith in anything, right? But what I have faith in now that I didn't have faith in two weeks ago was the collective organized body of the union, right? So, I'm not sure what the future holds in terms of negotiating a new deal. And I know that there's already a lot of anxiety among the faculty about what that deal is going to look like. But I think what's fundamentally different is that we now have an organized faculty. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to change everything going forward. And an organized faculty that just got a a little dose of how strong we really are uh, when we organize and come together as a collective. Right? It would have been easy for us to ratify the contract as it was given to us and avoid the trauma, I would say, of, of, of having to stay out of work, right? None of us have paychecks for two weeks. None of us have health insurance. You know, it was like a big risk, and it was really scary. And the fact that we were able to do it and able to stay out until the administration uh, agreed to continue bargaining with us tells me that we're going to be able to harness that strength and organize that strength going forward. I'm not sure how to do that. Like tonight, I just want to have a beer and be excited. But tomorrow, I think the work really begins with building on the sort of organization that was produced by the lockout. 
yeah. we can make some, some change going forward. What are you looking forward to in terms of going back to work tomorrow? Um, how are you going to talk to the students about it? And what are you expecting uh, when you return to work? I'm training for the New York City Marathon. And I ordered all of these snacks to my office because I work in my office all the time. And they've just been sitting there and I haven't been able to eat them. So I'm looking forward to going and eating my marathon training snacks. I'm looking forward to a lot of people feeling really excited and happy about the power that we were just able to exert against capital. Like, how often do you get to exert meaningful power against capital? Like, it's never happened to me before. So I think that everyone's going to be feeling really excited about that, and I expect a lot of smiles. I don't know what it's going to be like to see the administrators who were willing to put us out on the street like that and then continually repeat in the press that it was our fault that we were out there, right? So those relationships are going to be a little more challenging for me to negotiate, but I'm not thinking about them right now, whatever. I hope that they're at home scared, thinking about themselves and how they're going to cope with having to look us in the face. Tomorrow, I'm excited to see students. I'm excited to see my fellow librarians and the people who are with me in this struggle. And I'm just uh, thrilled that we're going to get to go back to work. Yeah. 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 Well, you've come this far. A marathon sounds like a piece of cake right now. So. <laughs> kind of, a little bit. But just, uh, you know, I was at the rally tonight and one of, you know, one of the, uh, one of my coworkers, one of the clerical staff came down. She's like, do you want me to bring your snacks? And I was like, you know, I believe I'm going to be back at work. I believe I'm going to be someday back at work. So let's leave them in my office. And I didn't know at that point that I was really right. that I'd be back to work. I'll be back to work in the morning. I'm thrilled. Great. I hope they're non-perishable. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's okay. like high, high protein density snacks. Yeah. And that was Emily Javinsky, secretary of the Long Island University Faculty Federation. So on September 2nd, 180 million people walked off the job, but you probably didn't hear about it because it happened in India. India's labor movement staged one of the largest general strikes in the country's history and perhaps the history of the world. We heard barely a peep about it in the U.S. media, surprise, surprise. But to get some insight on what's going on there, I talked to economics professor at University of Massachusetts Amherst, Dr. Vamsi Varkobahanam. First of all, explain to us what happened over the past couple of weeks with this strike. How many people took part, who participated, and um, explain the factors leading up to it. So, uh, you know, on September 2nd, you know, 2016, uh, you know, there was a a general strike announced by, uh, you know, most of the major trade union federations in India, uh, including, uh, you know, the Center for Indian Trade Unions. Indian National Trade Union Congress, All All India Trade Union Congress. These are the, you know, very big federations. And uh, uh, one federation did not uh, uh, show its support. And that's the uh, federation that's affiliated to uh, the ruling party, which is the BJP, Bharatiya Janata Party in India. Uh, And, uh, you know, in terms of the numbers, uh, you know, again, there are estimates in uh, different uh, media outlets uh, but uh, there seems to be agreement that more than 150 million workers uh, participated in the strike. To what extent is that an unprecedented development? Uh, this is, you know, this is probably the largest strike ever in Indian history. Uh, and uh, this is also probably the largest strike in, uh, you know, any country because, uh, you know, 150 million workers striking on one day 
uh, is an extraordinary thing. Uh, so, uh, so in terms of you know precedents, uh, you know a similar general strike was uh, conducted last year on September second. So September second, twenty fifteen, there was a general strike, and uh, at that time more than hundred million workers participated. Uh, and this year, you know, the numbers have only gone up, you know, from 100 million to 150 million, according to various estimates. And uh, in 2014, uh, February 20th of uh, uh, 2014, 20th and 21st of February, uh, there was a similar general strike. It's been a series of general strikes in the Indian context where, you know, major trade union federations have come together and they have, uh, you know, they have voiced their demands. And this particular general strike, uh, you know, there were uh, there were 12 demands. I mean, if you look at the charter of demands, they, they, uh, the federations agreed on, you know, 12 basic demands. And uh, they, the, you know, the first demand is about uh, price hikes of essential commodities. And they are arguing that, you know, government should intervene and, uh, uh, you know, reduce the inflationary pressure uh, for poor people. So that's, you know, the very first demand. Uh, and uh, uh, other than that, you know, they, they have argued, uh, uh, they have demanded increases in minimum wages. Uh, you know, right now, uh, the minimum wage is, uh, you know, really low in India. It's around, you know, six to seven thousand rupees, uh, which is like, you know, uh, for a, uh, uh, you know, whole month, uh, which is around hundred dollars, uh, you know, for a whole month. Uh, so they've uh, demanded that the minimum wage should be increased to 18,000 rupees, uh, which would be like $300 a month, uh, you know, for all workers. Uh, so that would be the minimum wage. And they're also, uh, you know, they've asked for uh, universal social security, uh, which includes pension, which includes public distribution of uh, essential commodities. Uh, they've also asked for universal, uh, you know, some kind of health care support uh, for workers. Uh, and uh, other than these, you know, there have been uh, two other major demands. One is the government, uh, the current government has been attacking, uh, you know, workers in by uh, in various ways. But one of the ways in which they are doing uh, uh, this is uh, by diluting the labor laws. You know, uh, India has uh, a decent structure of labor laws. So uh, the government has been trying to, uh, you know, uh, uh, watered down, you know, uh, reduce the labor uh, law, uh, uh, you know, protection for workers, which basically means uh, that, you know, employers will have much greater freedom in uh, retrenching workers uh, at their will. Uh, fewer factories will <clears throat> fall under the purview of uh, Indian labor legislation. Uh, so that's one set of demands, you know, to to protect the existing labor legislation. And another uh, uh, demand that's been consistent with the trade union federations, you know, over the last 25 years, uh, you know, when India embarked on market-oriented reforms, uh, is to prevent the privatization of, uh, uh, you know, well-functioning public sector organizations, public sector enterprises, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, state-owned enterprises. Uh, there's been a lot of privatization, what is... Uh, 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 known in economics jargon as uh, divestment or disinvestment, uh, you know, and uh, 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 so the unions have opposed, uh, you know, that kind of uh, privatization. And uh, they've also voiced a demand to, uh, you know, to, to uh, not to sort of uh, hire uh, contract workers in any work that is of a perennial nature, uh, you know, something that, uh, you know, has to be done repeatedly. 
you should not fill such work with uh, you know contract workers so that's basically uh, you know being done on a large scale uh, to cheapen labor so so these are you know these are uh, you know these four or five sets of demands uh, four or five kinds of themes you know run through the charter of demands and they had a, a set of 12 demands in total so that's the broad context and you know it it brought together workers from public sector enterprises uh it uh, brought workers from uh, you know informal work uh you know contract workers uh and uh, so across the board you know workers uh, from different walks of life uh, have participated in this event and if you look at uh, you know one uh, uh, you know important observation to make here is that the indian media has been singularly cynical about the uh, the strike uh, they they uh, one they have said you know it's not a major strike two they said you know uh, uh, apart from two three states in uh, in the south uh, kerala state where the communist party is in rule uh, and uh, karnataka where you know there's an opposition party that's uh, that's in power uh, you know other than these two states you know the strike was a major flop you know th- these are the kinds of reports that have come out in the indian media that's not too sur- surprising because uh, uh, you know indian media is run uh, largely by corporate uh, uh, you know owners and uh, they have every reason to uh, you know show that the strike was not very effective uh, but uh, in reality the strike i think was a major success uh, and this i could gather through alternative media outlets uh, because i am located uh, in the us uh, i made several phone calls and spoke with uh, you know people who are uh, who were actually participating in the strike and what they say is that you know uh, it's an unprecedented uh, strike in terms of its uh, numbers and its overall success as you noted um this seems to be a, a not if not a very regular occurrence at least we know it's happened before do you get a sense that the circumstances this time around were different were was there a different set of immediate triggers has the situation worsened and do you see a sense of progression from say last year's general strike or is it just basically like they make these perennial demands and then you know everyone goes back to work the next day no i think uh, you know uh, there are three kinds of triggers uh, michelle i mean if i have to outline all three uh, let me you know uh, first identify you know what has happened in the last 2 3 years uh, because uh, in 2014 there was a change of guard uh, at the national level you know uh, the indian national congress uh, which was leading a coalition government was voted out of power and uh, the new government you know is headed by uh, bjp bharatiya janata party uh, and uh, it's uh, you know led by this uh, prime minister narendra modi uh, you know who uh, is you know quite notorious uh, you know he he is most famous for his involvement in 2002 uh, riots against uh, muslims you know and uh, the state was either silent or actively abetted in the killing of uh, you know thousands of muslims uh, in gujarat you know which is his home state uh, but uh, uh, you know after narendra modi's uh, government took over uh, uh, you know there has been an effort to uh, you know change a lot of policies uh uh and uh, you know so that is you know triggering a lot of protests you know on after he has taken over so what are the kinds of changes that narendra modi has brought about uh you know one of the things you know uh, uh you know he was voted to power uh on the promise that you know he'll make uh, uh the investment climate 
much better, much healthier for the you know business owners. And uh, uh, so what uh, he tried to do is you know he tried to make uh, uh, you know land acquisition you know much simpler. Uh, you know land acquisition is uh, a process in which you know uh, lands that belong to farmers you know are transferred to uh, for urban use you know for industrial use or you know they're simply transferred to uh, industrialists or uh, investors uh, who want who want to set up new businesses so he tried to bring about a a a, a bill a, a, a legislation uh, that would make land acquisition much much easier for the business people and that didn't go through because you know indian parliament structure is a bit complicated uh, there are two houses you know like in the us senate and uh, you know house of representatives we have uh, something called lok sabha which is where you know people get uh, elected on a popular basis and then there is another uh, uh, house the upper house rajya sabha uh, you know wh- where uh, the uh, government of narendra modi doesn't have a majority so they have been stalling you know some of these uh, uh, reforms so the land acquisition bill did not uh, go through but you know there was a very uh, you know uh, intense effort to bring about that tra- transformation uh you know so that the business community would be happier two uh you know narendra modi's uh, government has also uh, tried to water down or dilute some progress to welfare oriented measures that the previous regime had introduced uh, not very strong but you know uh, something like uh, in 2004 uh, you know a rural employment guarantee scheme was introduced by uh, you know the government uh, that was in power at that time uh where you know all rural residents of india would be guaranteed you know uh, a, a certain amount of work every year 100 days of work every year uh at a certain minimum wage so so this uh, you know has been uh, extremely successful uh that particular legislation has one created a fallback position for the rural workers who are the poorest people in india and uh, so their wages have gone up their incomes have gone up somewhat in rural areas that's that's one thing but the second thing is you know in the village structures uh you know where the local landlords or the local rich peasants uh tend to be uh, very very dominant uh you know having a, an employment scheme that doesn't involve the local landlords or the rich peasants has also empowered uh you know a lot of these rural workers uh and uh, that's that was uh, presented by the rural elite so you know the, so narendra modi one of the things that he has tried to do is uh, you know try to i mean he, he didn't dismantle the scheme but you know he is reducing the funding you know some states are not getting adequate funds so so that sort of you know watering down of you know existing progressive measures uh, and three uh, you know uh, he has uh, you know one uh, in, in in the third point uh, you know he's tried to bring about many institutional changes legislative changes uh, vis-a-vis uh, indian workers uh, so uh, you know one of the uh, uh, important uh, changes that he has tried to bring about is uh, he tried to intervene in the industrial relations so introduced a draft code of industrial relations legislation last year in 2015 according to which uh, you know a lot of workers who were protected by uh, labor legislation earlier will no longer be protected it will be much easier uh, for uh, you know employers to fire workers uh, uh, it will be much easier for employers to uh, you know pay uh, lower benefits uh, it will be much easier for employers to hire contract workers uh, uh, where you know 
permanent workers existed earlier. All these provisions, and it will be much more difficult for workers to complain to the government. You know, there, there's a whole labor inspection regime in India that, that exists because of the labor legislation. So labor inspection, you know, basically in Narendra Modi's government has tried to dilute, uh, you know, labor uh, uh, inspection, which is a process by which, you know, if workers have a complaint about, uh, you know, any uh, process or uh, any, uh, uh, you know, incident in the workplace, then a labor inspector immediately visits the workplace. Uh, Also, labor inspectors could come unannounced and, you know, do their own inspection. Now, these measures have all been diluted in the proposed uh, legislation. So, workers have been militant uh, in their opposition to this new uh, legislation. Uh, And uh, so, you know, and and, uh, uh, of course, you know, so these are all, you know, small changes, uh, you know, institutional changes, you know, that have very significant impact on uh, the working population, how their labor is valued, how their working lives would be structured. But at the end of you know, there's a much bigger macro phenomenon, which is also, uh, you know, provoking the workers, uh, you know, to go and protest like this, you know, to participate in a general strike. Uh, you know, this is basically, uh, you know, Indian economy was growing rapidly until uh, 2008, you know, especially between 2002 and 2008, uh, you know, Indian economy achieved almost double digit growth rates, you know, it was uh, comparable to the Chinese uh, kind of growth. Uh, but post-2008, after the global crisis, uh, you know, Indian economy, along with the Chinese economy, uh, most economies across the world have slowed down. And Indian economy slowed down quite a bit. And, uh, you know, uh, well, you know, the numbers are still high relative to the U.S. Uh, so Indian economy is now growing at 6 to 7% per annum. Uh, but the key point there uh, is that, you know, uh, the growth, especially after 2008, 2009, Uh, has not generated uh, enough jobs. Uh, And so, you know, a major, uh, you know, critique of uh, Indian growth process is that, you know, it's not employment generating. And this is also a major distinction between Chinese growth and Indian growth. The reason why I'm mentioning this is in 2014, when Narendra Modi's government came to power, uh, you know, he uh, came on the platform of, uh, he basically said uh, that he's for development Development and uh, development basically for him means growth. Uh, so he would promote growth, and uh, elites loved that idea that you know India will get back onto a high growth kind of uh, uh, trajectory again. Uh, but he also said it will be good days for everybody. Good days for everybody meant so he used the Hindi expression Achedin. Achedin means good days. So good days for everybody basically means everybody's uh, uh, you know incomes would go up. People will find employment. Uh, there'll be widespread, uh, widespread flourishing of, uh, you know, of incomes and happiness and so forth. Uh, but that hasn't happened. You know, that uh, has uh, is belied that promise. And uh, what has happened instead is, you know, there's a lot of communal strife between, you know, different religious communities in the country. Uh, the economic growth process has uh, not taken off and uh, employment opportunities haven't increased. Uh, and if you look at uh, Indian labor force, about 90% of Indian labor force uh, is uh, in the informal sector, uh, you know, where uh, they're not uh, uh, under any kind of, you know, uh, labor regulation. So this 90%, you know, is uh, uh, hired as uh, contract workers or they're into self-employment, either in rural or urban areas. Uh, so they haven't seen those good days. 
and uh, it's now two years since the government has come to power uh, and uh, you know they've decided to go on a major strike uh, and uh, 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 you know indicate to the government that you know this is they didn't want to debilitate the entire economy so they just went on strike for a day but it's a warning that you know you promise good days and you are not showing us good days uh, and you are also you know uh, uh, implementing all these welfare uh, diluting measures so we yeah. we will protest and this is a sign of that kind of a protest how would you define the working class of india today as represented by this strike and other uh, recent industrial disputes um in the west we hear a lot about um india you know of course being a very unequal society but generally also divided along other lines um you know sectarian lines we hear about communal violence um you know gender divides uh, rural to urban divides where does where does uh, sort of you know labor struggle fit into this you know one you know in terms of the divides that you mentioned uh you know this strike was mainly in urban areas so you know although india is primarily rural even now uh you know about 60 to 65% of indian population uh is still primarily re- resident in rural areas even today so you know although uh indian census says that you know india uh, around 35% of india is urban there's also a lot you know increase in the floating population uh you know which moves between rural and urban spaces you know th- this is basically a footloose kind of uh, uh working population which is quite significant in terms of numbers uh but uh, in in terms of the speciality of this particular strike uh it was a, an urban phenomenon uh it was in uh, cities and towns so that's the first point the second point is uh, in terms of uh, the urban workers uh, india probably has around 150 to 250 million workers in urban spaces so out of which around 150 millions or 180 millions depending on the estimate uh, it's a phenomenal uh, you know proportion of workers that took part in the strike however indian working class is uh, divided as you rightly pointed out along multiple lines let's start with class you know uh, if, if we look at uh, 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 you know internal to the working class what are the divisions uh, economic divisions you know there are unskilled workers uh, you know who are into construction or who are self employed uh, who are in the informal sector then you have skilled workers you know people who uh, have some skill or the other electricians or carpenters or you know plumbers uh, that sort of a uh, population or you know people who work in factories with some skill or the other and then you have uh, professionals uh, you know these are also workers but you know they are very highly paid uh, they work in uh, you know the modern industries uh, they work in uh, uh, information technology for instance or uh, pharmaceutical industries or uh, uh you know that, that's sort of a you know modern you know finance or banking or that sort of a thing and then you have the public sector workers you know which is again you know uh, if you take the total labor force it's probably uh, 4 to 5% uh, of the entire workforce uh, and uh, they are in the formal sector so if if you look at uh, you know this sort of a class uh, uh, understanding of you know the working class within the working class what are the divisions uh, what you uh see is you know the professionals in the private sector you know who work for it firms or pharmaceutical firms or banking finance etc they did not take part in the strike you know they are doing quite well over the last uh, 25 years 
uh, ever since India embarked on economic reforms. Uh, they've made uh, a, a good fortune in the last uh, two to three decades. And uh, since they're beneficiaries of, uh, you know, the economic reforms that India introduced, uh, which ushered in markets, which ushered in private uh, capitalism, uh, you know, they, they, they did not take part in this, right? They have no sympathy. In fact, they are the ones who also, uh, you know, are media reporters, you know, people who guide media stories. These are the ones who write uh, media editorials. So, uh, you know, they, they definitely were not part of this strike. But if you leave the professional groups, you know, which is a small proportion of the total population, I mean, total workforce uh, in urban areas, uh, the rest of the, uh, you know, uh, uh, working class actually uh, took part in the strike in large numbers. So, so in that sense, you know, there is a divide within the working class. The relatively affluent uh, members of the working class did not take part in the strike. Uh, when you come to other divisions, uh, you know, within the working class, uh, you know, there are, uh, because the Indian, uh, you know, the, the trade union federation that is affiliated with the ruling party in India, uh, you know, it's called BMS, Bharat Mazdur Sangh, uh, they did not take part. So, you know, they are, uh, I mean, I don't know if all workers subscribe to the ideology of the ruling party, but the ruling party in India, BJP has a very clear uh, you know, Hindu supremacist, you know, uh, uh, or Hindu fundamentalist uh, kind of a an ideology. So some of the, you know, uh, workers who are affiliated with uh, BMS, you know, which is uh, the federation uh, that is affiliated with the ruling party, uh, they, you know, are definitely in that camp, you know, where they believe in Hindu fundamentalism. They, there is a hatred of other communities and uh, there is a, a general sense that, you know, Hindus have been wronged you know, for uh, many centuries and they have to, uh, you know, they have to uh, be supported at this point in time. And uh, so that group, uh, you know, of course, uh, which supports the government did not take part. Uh, but in terms of the other divisions, like, you know, gender, for instance, uh, you know, from whatever I gathered uh, from the media itself, uh, you know, even mainstream media and uh, from my conversations, you know, there were large numbers of women uh, who took part in this protest. Uh, both uh, factory workers, uh, but also non-factory informal working women, uh, contract workers, you know. Uh, uh, so women were uh, there in large numbers uh, in this general strike. Uh, and uh, uh, other than this, you know, there's also India also has a caste system. So the working class is also uh, driven by, you know, caste differences. Uh, from what I could gather, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, uh, so-called, you know, uh, 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 lowest castes in India, uh, you know, the untouchable, uh, quote-unquote, community, uh, they also took part in the strike in large numbers. So I don't think there was any division al- along caste lines, you know, especially, uh, you know, uh, uh, workers, uh, you know, who are not in the professional camp. Uh, for workers who are not in the professional camp, I didn't see any caste kind of divisions. Uh, and uh, I didn't see... Uh, you know any I mean this was not dominated by men or dominated by women so I think both were there in large numbers of course along religious lines you know people who subscribe to a particular kind of uh, ideology of Hindu fundamentalism uh, they uh, did not take part in the strike but you know Indian working class is not uh, as well organized as uh, you know the strike may indicate uh, because, you know, uh, although, you know, 150 million workers or more took part 
in this right uh, you know this is uh, you know it's not uh, uh, it doesn't uh, necessarily imply that you know these uh, workers are all together all the time and you know they are going to fight for their demands they are going to stage uh, you know sustained protests you know for a much longer period and uh they have the ability to win their demands but the very fact that you know they could even come together for one day uh and uh, you know forge a platform of unity uh is a big deal you know despite uh, you know all the divisions across industries across different classes of labor across uh, religions and so on and so forth so on the whole you know i would see uh, uh this as a major coming together although uh, this doesn't yet mean that you know indian working class is together and it, they have a collective consciousness uh, and they have interests that are uh, unified uh, it it is driven by you know sectarian lines you know uh, in terms of their everyday struggles you know there are different communist parties there are other political parties which have the indian national congress has its own trade union federation so on the ground these differences still exist but they buried their differences and came together for the general struggle but you know speaking about solidarity um india in washington has been promoted as sort of the uh you know the the darling of the obama administration kind of a poster boy for free trade and neoliberalism and the promises of uh, global development india seems to really want to burnish its reputation with the rest of the world what should american workers you know what should we take away from the strike about the failed promises of neoliberalism in the sense that you know all is not what it seems even in an age of of this supposedly liberal administration america has multiple interests in promoting india uh, you know uh, and india also has uh, india meaning indian elites have uh, multiple interests in trying to forge a friendship with uh, the us government you know my my own sense is that you know uh, the you know uh, uh, indian capital uh indian capitalist class you know and, and uh, american capitalist class see a lot of common cause because you know uh, indian capitalist class would uh, facilitate you know through outsourcing or subcontracting or, or you know taking uh, you know helping uh, american capital set up business in india uh, you know they they have common cause in terms of you know uh, uh, facilitating the profitability of american cap- capitalists and uh, uh, american capitalists uh, therefore benefit and you know so at an economic level you know promoting neoliberal policies uh, uh, is in the common interests of both these capitalist groups uh, promoting neoliberal policies in india the point is that uh, you know politically you know obama administration also has the strategic interests uh, in promoting india as this you know post boy uh, good country in asia uh, you know for for the longest time americans uh, you know had a strategic interest in opposing india when india was progressive when india was uh, more aligned with you know uh, uh, not al- you know they were part of the non aligned movement they didn't want to align with any one power you know super power uh, during the cold war period but post cold war era you know india has changed its stance uh, and us has strategic interest it needs a strong uh, country there you know uh, which will serve as some kind of a uh, you know oppositional space to to china for instance so 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 us has its its interests and india you know with us support you know they can uh, they can try to get more weaponry and you know so there are strategic interests uh, uh, for uh, the indian state also uh, and as i said there are uh, common interests for indian capitalists and american capitalists the so 
on that front you know uh, there there is uh, all this common space that is being forged but i don't see how you know uh, american workers and indian workers uh, uh, will benefit uh from you know what is being uh, uh 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 imagined as you know this great unity between us and india uh neither american workers nor indian workers uh, stand to benefit uh i'm talking about the majorities here stand to benefit from this sort of strategic cooperation or economic cooperation between these two countries i think uh, there are uh, uh, areas in which you know a little bit of protection might uh, might actually help you know both these countries uh and uh, you know uh, saying no to certain kinds of uh, free flow of capital uh, uh, from us to india or uh, uh, you know the other way around is not much but uh, you know that uh, is not going to particularly uh, you know the, the free flow or, or free mobility of capital is not going to be very helpful to uh, either class of workers uh, uh, other than you know slender minorities you know in both countries which stand to benefit uh, even within the workers you know the professional workers so in that sense you know american progressives or american uh, uh, you know workers ought to uh, you know ought to uh, see how they can uh, you know uh, they can forge some kind of a unity with indian workers right i mean beyond these media images beyond uh, uh, the so called strategic and economic unity of uh, india and us which is basically uh, you know an attempt to continue neoliberal neoliberalism uh, you know, you know which is uh, uh, you know some kind of broad anti worker kind of uh, uh, economic agenda and you know to continue uh, the same policies of us uh, imperialism you know uh, uh, and taking india as an ally in the process so so i think you know it's very clear you know if you look at the whole uh, project that uh, this is what the american elites and indian elites want to do uh, promote neoliberalism and you know uh, continue with us imperialism i think you know these ought to be opposed by the working groups in both countries and you know of course uh, uh, more conversations need to happen you know uh, us media didn't cover didn't properly cover at least you know the strike and uh, the antecedents of the strike or you know what happened after uh, but uh, you know uh, there are uh, i mean working people have their own means and channels through which you know they they can uh, learn about uh, one another and uh, this is i see dissent as you know one such outlet Uh, which allows for that kind of a uh, communication between working people of different countries that was umass economics professor vamsi vakubahanam and i also talked to gartam modi he is the new trade union initiative general secretary in new delhi talk about what you saw on the day of the strike and um how it might have differed this year from strikes uh previously because i understand that you know this general strikes are not unheard of in india so you know the strike was uh, i wouldn't say entirely different i mean it was it was um in its own way very similar to the last strike which happened exactly a year ago on the 2nd of december 2015 um we saw um a very strong response to the strike in the newly emerging industrial areas uh which i think is 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 very important we had absolute shutdown in some of the largest multinational companies across this country uh, and of course uh, indian companies too uh um we saw um as expected a very substantial shutdown of the banking and financial sector uh what was perhaps different um is is really in terms of mobilization were two things one we we did see protests 
um, however small, actually in, in, in the countryside, um, in rural areas, uh, which is unusual for a general strike. Rural workers don't, 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 don't really um, go on um, mass industrial action uh, either uh, other than for very specific issues or, of course, for, for, for larger political questions. Uh, the second thing that we saw that was different and that's very critical for a general strike, we saw public transport shut down, public transport workers um, coming going on strike um, across the states of Tamil Nadu, Karnataka, and the, in southern India especially. So um, I think, um, you know, it's a bit like um, you can have a strike, but you don't see the effect unless public transport shuts. So um, these were, in terms of the ground, a couple of things that were different. Much of India's workforce, as I'm sure you know, is um, employed in uh, informal and, and casual sector jobs. Um, what is the relationship like between the trade unions and um, and you know the non-union workforce or the workforce that is uh, supposedly unorganized? I guess you could say. I mean, unions like ours uh, are substantially unions um, in what I would call a workers working in conditions of informality. Reality is it's not just about the so-called unorganized or informal sector. Today, the fact is that in the factory sector, in the large corporations, in government employment, uh, very large numbers of um, um, employees are without contracts and therefore effectively in conditions of informality with no protection, no rights. Um, yeah. Uh, but, but, but I think it would be fair to say that all progressive unions, irrespective of um, you know, uh, where they are on the progressive ruler, uh, do engage reasonably effectively more and more with workers in conditions of informality. And I think that that's where we're seeing the fruits of that engagement. We're able to, we're able to address their issues. We're able to reach out to them um, in very, very large numbers, um, you know, and, and that's where we see um, a lot of, um, you know, a lot of resonance, uh, especially on the issue of the minimum wage, which affects them um, more directly than it affects uh, workers who are protected by contracts and typically earn about the minimum wage. How does a unionization uh, work in India? Is is there sort of a standard private sector process whereby people have union elections? And, and what is the density of the unions on average, you know, in a given workforce? Well, in the Indian workforce, uh, I think the ballpark average is between 8 and 10 percent, which is, which is undoubtedly low. Uh, and uh, um, uh, unionization takes many forms um, in the private sector. It's often company-based, but, but, but it's also um, class-based organizations uh, that are beginning to sort of uh, revisit the challenge of, 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 you know, organizing directly on the shop floor and therefore um, organizing neighborhoods and localities, uh, really moving beyond workplace unionism. I think that's that's critical and that's important. That's an important way forward from what I would call 20th century unionism, especially given the lack of protection that so many, uh, 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 you know, the lack of protection that uh, affects just so many workers, the vast majority of the workforce. Mm -hmm. uh, union uh, recognition, so to speak, by employers um, happens through a legal process uh, that more often than not involves verification of union records by um, the Labor Department. The, the secret ballot election for, for, for um, choosing, um, uh, for employers' acceptance of, a, of, of um, a union of workers' choice is uh, rather the exception than the rule. Increasingly in the, in the public sector, 
uh, courts are ordering, um, especially the Supreme Court is ordering uh, elections to, to, to decide on union recognition. But the private sector has been successful in, in, in stymieing that um, so far. So that, that certainly remains a, a, you know, winning union rights in the private sector still remains uh, 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 gray and tricky uh, and a very arduist process and more and more calls for an enormous amount of patience on the side of workers and union members. Are general strikes like this, are they are they based around cross-cutting social issues as well? I, I saw that, you know, in some of your campaign materials, you're referencing the plight of Dalits and other issues of oppression of different groups. How does the trade union movement uh, fit into some of those other struggles? You know, if you go back to the history of general strikes, and there's a record of uh, general strikes that sort of begins in 1991 with the opening up of the economy, and there was, you know, there were general strikes every couple of years, uh, all, all for the one day in 2013, there was a general strike for two days, the, the first and so far the only time we've had a, lo- a more than 24-hour general strike. Certainly in the last two years, I mean, they started off in the early 90s as very much public sector oriented for public sector pay and benefits, and more often than not didn't really go beyond um, um, the public sector and old entrenched private sector unions. Uh, we've seen uh, in, in recent years the general strikes going beyond this, going on to questions importantly of workers um, in the informal sector. Uh, we've certainly seen a huge uh, uh, capacity, the capacity of the trade union expand into the informal sector into the last, sec- uh, into the last two general strikes uh, addressing the question of, of, um, of land acquisition which really affects um, the rural marginalized who perhaps survive on their homesteads. Uh, uh, yes, I mean, you know, and so from there we've logically reached to larger political questions, the question of um, um, uh, the oppressed castes and minority religions. I mean, we're, we're, a, we're a peculiar country. We have a Muslim minority of 120 million. Um, uh, uh, but, but uh, you know, um, so yes, I think these issues have come in. Um, but they need to come in very much more. I mean, the question of women workers needs to be articulated much more. I don't think we've been really able to advance the uh, uh, the, the, the call for equal pay for equal work, uh, specifically for women workers who do continue to get less than what their male counterparts get. So we need to do more. We've done we've done some, but we've you know we've really only touched the tip of the iceberg. We need to do very much more. There are serious risks involved in labor organizing um, across um, Asia, really, um, especially in uh, more informal sectors. What are some of the risks that workers may face if they do take a militant action? For instance, in this general strike, was there any chance that you know workers would face retaliation? And if so, how do they deal with that? Well, we we faced uh, you know we faced a day long arrest in a um, as he said in the. Um, uh, largest southern city of Chennai in a special export processing zone uh, where our um, entire leadership and, and membership was picked up on the, at the gate and locked up for the day. Uh, and we had inte- we have intelligence trailing them and our national organization. So that's one kind of risk. We, um, I think, across the country, both our leadership and membership, uh, but, but, but others too, faced, faced arrests. Um, we've... Um, we are hearing, as we're just past payday this month, we're, we are hearing of um, notices issued to, to key um, shop flow leaders um, in, in, in large private companies. Um, 
for union activity. Um, um, just today I've learned of the dismissal of a worker at a Honda car plant in the outskirts of Delhi uh, f- for the general strike. So, yes, we're beginning to see repression uh, as the, you know, the capacity has increased and the strike has in a way become a, polit- a political articulation of the working class. We're certainly seeing um, very, very aggressive action from employers. And I think we see worse. Uh, we're going to see worse still in the days to come. Um, um, but, but I think um, outside and beyond the general strike, I think the biggest threat uh, and the immediate threat workers uh, face when they join a union is being fired. Uh, and that's particularly the case with those who don't have contracts, where then uh, fighting fighting it out, um, especially through the legal process, is, is, is difficult because they don't have proof of employment. What are some of the um, sort of political dynamics surrounding uh, Modi's tenure so far? Um, have you observed changes? I mean, what we've been observing from the outside, at least, is that um, there's been a sharp push for privatization and um, opening up to global markets. Um, what's the what's the union movement's relationship to that? Yes, we've certainly seen um, uh, a agenda of privatization, which hasn't quite fully been rolled out, but it's very much on the cards. Um, we are uh, beginning to see um, in the in the public sector corporations. Uh, we are beginning to see uh, uh, increasing privatization by stealth, privatization of services, privatization of various kinds of um, uh, facilities. Uh, or, or contracting out. Uh, yes, we're seeing opening up of um, the market. We're seeing we've seen um, uh, investment limits for overseas corporations raised in a variety of sectors, most notably in both healthcare and defense. We, we are seeing a fairly systematic attack on uh, labor law as it exists, on trade union rights, um, um, on, on on health and safety regulation. Um, you know. And this is really where, where uh, Modi, the Modi government, the BJP government, does not enjoy a majority in the upper house of parliament, which is necessary to, to legislate. Uh, and they are beginning to push through legislation um, uh, through the states in which they have governments, uh, where, within the you know, bandwidth that states have to, to, to alter national um, or federal legislation. So we are rapidly ending up in a situation where some states have laxer labor regulation, uh, which would then put pressure on non-BJP state governments to change their laws too. Otherwise, they would cease to be competitive. So there's a it's a it's a two-way dynamic emanating from Delhi, but also emanating from BJP state capitals, um, which is aimed at cornering the centrist parties. So yes, that's where we are. And I mean, you know, I think the strike is a good signal to the Modi government that working class, working people, and those who are oppressed, uh, be they Dalits, be they Muslims, are not with this government. So they are going to have to think very hard about their next election, which is really only two and a half years away. Mm. Um, and what was the sense that you got on the ground um, You know, as the strike unfolded? Did you feel that the public was in solidarity with the workers? Is there still... Uh, you know, how, how are industrial actions like this perceived by the general public? Because it does seem like Modi is extremely popular, um, perhaps relatively speaking. He's probably relatively popular, that's correct. But, 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 but that's, you know, uh, we, are, we are a layered society, perhaps more layered, and therefore popularity is not, or lack of it is not very obvious if you, if you go off the newspaper headlines. Uh, I, I, think, I think the, I mean, the, 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 
people actually on the street were with the strike where the strike was effective. I think that's 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 important to say. Uh, where obviously there were there were parts of the country in which the strike was not effective. This is a large country and a very plural country. Um, you know, the city of Bombay, yes, the or even the city of Delhi, the strike was really not very very effective in the in the center of the metropolis. Uh, but elsewhere, we didn't hear complaints about the lack of public transport. People were prepared for it. So I think we've been able to win over the middle and the lower middle class. That's very important in any in any um, sort of you know advance of this kind. Uh, I think equally important is uh, it's important to flag that you know from from uh, some of us actually believed until very recently that the general strike mechanism had become a bit of a routine. Uh, I think that's changed, and now we're going to see a general strike perhaps every year, perhaps on the 2nd of September every year, or on the closest working day around 2nd of September. I think next next year, 2nd of September is going to be a Saturday, so we, you know, we're going to be thinking about perhaps the 1st to the 4th. We've not had the time to all put our heads together and think, 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 uh, uh, you know, about what we want to do next year. But there's a, there's, there's, I think there was sufficient indication this time that the government was very edgy about the strike. They actually offered a rise in the minimum wage for public sector employees, um, just for public sector employees, um, you know, which would only reach about 2% of, 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 uh, of workers, but, but they still tried to sort of make, make, uh, make an offer. Uh, I think that, that sent a very good message. That sent a message, if you push this government, they will cave. So why not cave in? So while on the one hand they're going... Um, hammer and tongs with their agenda of reform, including stripping uh, workers' rights. Uh, they are also keen to to have workers on their side. They're very conscious that they did win a section of the oppressed caste vote. They won a very large chunk of the working class vote that brought them to government. And if they don't have that, they're not going to be able to to, to stay on much longer. So there is a bit of wobble on the government side, and I think we've um, yes tasted blood that if you push this government they might actually cave in um, because they do want another term. Is there a deep sort of working class consciousness there? How, how militant um, are people you know, in terms of class-based disputes? I think we're seeing more and more militancy. I think, I think the working class has been pushed very far. It's been squeezed uh, uh, you know, beyond anybody's imagination. We're seeing rising militancy. Uh, there's always been sort of a very strong um, influence of, you know, left thinking within within Indian politics and, of course, therefore within the working class. But we're seeing an expansion of that. While that may not directly translate into votes for the left parties, uh, there's certainly sort of, you know, ex- growing unions. All unions are growing across. The, all progressive uh, militant unions are growing quite rapidly cr- across the country. We're not the only ones. Uh, and um, I think uh, that's... Uh, you know, I think that's 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 a good sign, and that's a that's a good sign at this point when we're facing, like everywhere else in the world, an incredible attack from the far right on ideas of nationalism, on you know, uh, promotion of xenophobia, sort of um, differentiation between 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 people of different religions. We're seeing an attack on women. It's an enormous strength to all of us that we're able to mobilize in this environment in larger numbers and in you know, start building a resistance against the right-wing attack. And that was Gautam Modi, General Secretary of the New Trade Union Initiative, talking about the general strike in India. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. 
Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for ARG. I wish I had written that. So the piece I chose this week is called Organizing with Klansmen for Social Justice, Bob Zellner Tells His Story by Shaley Gupton-Barnes. I definitely went ARG when I read this piece. I was in North Carolina a little over a year ago talking to the Moral Mondays folks, but I did not meet Bob Zellner, who came out of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and um, is a white Southerner whose father was a minister and spent decades organizing across race and class lines in the South. Recently, he has been a part of the Moral Mondays movement, a leader of the long march against hospital closures in rural North Carolina, and, well, in between all of that, has time to share some really excellent stories. I am incredibly jealous that I did not get to sit down with him. The interview up in two parts set in these times is a Q&A, so it's a little outside of the framework that we normally use for ARG, but it was so good that I had to share it. It seems like every election cycle, there is, of course, all the hand-wringing about the so-called white working class, which is mostly an excuse for people from Democratic presidential candidates on down to call them all a bunch of racists. To read Zellner talking about organizing avowed racists, actual Ku Klux Klan members alongside black workers in the Deep South is perhaps more necessary than ever in the age of Donald Trump. And, of course, he was organizing in the age of George Wallace. He says, quote, We made it very clear from the very beginning, G-R-O-W, GROW, stands for grassroots organizing work, and it also means get rid of Wallace. And we oppose the Klan method of separating workers. We'd say, you may be a Klansman, you may be racist, but if you want a union and you want GROW Project to work with you, you need to understand that we're from SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. We are from SCEF, the Southern Conference Educational Fund. And they knew these organizations. SCEF was on billboards in the South, pictures of Martin Luther King, Miles Horton, Aubrey Williams, and others, pictures of all the people that we knew were on these billboards that said, Communist Training School, Highlander Folk School. We said, we all associate with the Highlander Folk School, and if you work with us, the FBI is going to come and tell you that we're dangerous communists. And I said, I've been arrested for criminal anarchy. I've been arrested under the John Brown statute for insurrection. So the old Klansmen would hit the table and say, you think you're the only one being messed over by the FBI? They follow us all the time. You think you're the only one that's been charged with shit? We've been charged with everything too. So we began to form a kind of camaraderie around that. End quote. Someone asked me, Sarah, this the other night, that if I thought that a white racial animus was stronger than economic self-interest. And of course, that's not a question I can actually ask answer of everybody. I don't know. Um, but I can say for sure that I would much rather be asked that question at a time when many, many more people are actually trying to organize the way that Bob Zellner suggests. And my pick for this week is on the BBC News website. It is by Bethan Bell and Shabnam Mahmood called The Grunwick Dispute. What did the, quote, strikers in saris achieve? Forty years ago, a curious sight erupted on the streets of London, something very British. It was a working-class uprising, and it took a new form, though, with a strike at the Grunwick Film Processing Factory. The labor strife this time around was not led by burly British men, but by South Asian migrant women. They are part of a great post-war wave of migration from the former British colonies that sought new job opportunities and were able to enter Britain and become citizens due to the past colonial ties. And they went on strike, and the strike ultimately grew to 20,000 supporters taking to the streets to defend the women and to stand up for their labor rights. 
and it was one of the first campaigns led by South Asian women in Britain and really anywhere in the diaspora, perhaps, uh, to demand fair working conditions and wages uh, for a group of workers that bosses had long dismissed as silent and docile. Many of the women had been born in India and Pakistan, but had lived much of their lives in Africa. And when places like Kenya erupted with the independence movements there, uh, the political upheaval sent them to flee to the UK to seek uh, better opportunities abroad. Um, But of course, when they arrived in Britain, like many other migrants, these women found only grueling low-wage factory work. They were frustrated by the poverty wages and the exhausting working conditions and from the general disrespect they got from their bosses. And during that long, hot summer of 1976, they took a stand for the first time against this giant employer. Um, They had just unionized and they were struggling to get their union recognized by the employer, but the boss refused, so they went on strike. They started out with little community support at first, but they managed to, through their militant labor actions, garner the support of the wider British public and the major trade union federations. Uh, they got solidarity from groups like the coal miners, and they generally just sort of caught the zeitgeist of the late 1970s in Britain, which was rife with class struggle. The labor standoff led to first the sacking of over 130 workers, mass campaigns to get the workers reinstated, um, but ultimately, after about two years, the effort petered out. They were not able to get the support they needed from the wider community, and the employer continued to largely ignore their demands. Um, But while the strike was considered a loss for the women, it did lead to some compelling political developments. Uh, The VC quotes researcher Amrit Wilson, the strike was a unique and transformative moment. It did not put an end to stereotypes of Asian women, but it certainly challenged them. This passionate assertion of strength and the claiming of a newfound collective identity, bringing with it a sense of hope and new possibilities, arose not only from taking a stand as exploited workers, but from collectively confronting racism at work. The strikes were frustrated by a number of systemic factors, chief among them the institutionalized racism that they faced as migrant women, as well as a generally oppressive atmosphere towards labor at the time. They were certainly not the only labor union to uh, face huge obstacles in trying to uh, organize and strike at that time. And it also marked a fissure in the British labor movement. One of the organizers, Jaya Ben Desai, she later reflected that the trade union support was like honey on the elbow. You can smell it, you can feel it, but you cannot taste it. And she was referring to the fact that the other British unions ultimately abandoned uh, the women's strike effort. Nonetheless, they did make a difference at Grunwick and beyond. The uproar the workers had caused actually led to some major policy changes. Unfortunately, they happened to be for the worse. Uh, The British Special Branch began to establish a surveillance program for labor activists. So that actually put uh, labor activism on alert under the intelligence agencies. But more importantly, it also put migrant women on the map of British politics and made them a known quantity in Britain's history of class struggle. Um, And it raised the consciousness of women who had long been viewed from both within their community and by the wider public as marginal and apolitical. It also incurred the wrath of Maggie Thatcher's government. She later actually outlawed solidarity strikes, uh, probably 
and a move that was influenced by these women. But generally, their legacy is that they revolted against economic oppression, systemic racism, and gender injustice in both the South Asian diaspora and in British societies at the time. And in many ways, the Grunwick strike foreshadowed the future efforts by Asian migrant women around the world, including right here in New York with groups like Andalan, uh, who joined the labor movement and organized in low-wage sectors that had previously been unorganized and were seen as unorganizable, and they really uh, defied those stereotypes. And the legacy of the so-called strikers and sardis still continues today. So with that in mind, I give the last word to Jaya Bindasai, the strike leader. As she walked off the job, the line manager compared her and her colleagues to, quote, chattering monkeys. And she ended up replying, quote, what you're running here is not a factory, it is a zoo. But in a zoo, there are many types of animals. Some are monkeys who dance on your fingertips. Others are lions who can bite your head off. We are the lions, Mr. Manager, unquote. And so that day, the bosses heard the women roar, and the fight was on, and they haven't looked back since. That's all for this episode of Belabored. If you have any questions, comments, story ideas, any industrial actions you are participating in, whether here or halfway around the world, you can tweet at us at hashtag belabored or you can email at us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Over and out. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.